We're in Jeremiah chapter 7. And we are going all the way to chapter 10. Next week, to look ahead so you guys can read, you got a busy reading schedule this week. 11 through 17, so that's a chapter a day. It's kind of like normal, just you got the weekends to read too. So, Jeremiah 7. We're going to see Jeremiah standing at the entrance of the temple. And as worshipers come onto the temple, he has a message for them. So as we read chapter 7 is his message to these worshipers, then 8, 9, and 10 is sort of uh, like a reflection, afterthoughts of the sermon that Jeremiah is going to give. 7 through 10 is a unit. It, it all goes together as a thought. Um, so that's why we're taking this chunk. So this, he's going to have this message for the people as they walk into the temple. And this is what I want us to hear right off the bat. He's talking to worshipers who are coming to worship. <laughs> so for us, what does it really mean to truly worship? And what I want us to think about as we go through the text is to think about this, that worship, true worship, should be a manifestation of the blessings of God's presence. That there is a God who is present amongst his people, and the, 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 his presence amongst us brings with it certain blessings, that there is not cursing in the midst of the Lord, but there is life and riches, spiritually speaking, and blessing. And a worshiping people receive what is happening from God, and then they receive it in such a way that it becomes manifest to the people around them. So that we become, in a sense, from worshipers to worship leaders to those that need to become worshipers. Okay, so we're manifesting the blessings of God's presence. And that's what true worship does, is it's receiving and it's manifesting. Now, Jeremiah stands before the temple gates to these coming worshipers, and he preaches a warning to them. Essentially along the lines of, your worship isn't true, it's false. The kind of worship that you are engaging in is not manifesting God's blessing around you. It's actually leading you to curse exile, scattering from the land of God, an enemy coming in and crushing you. That's where your present worship is leading you. going to shatter your identity, dislodge you from where you belong. So a little bit of background. What are the worshipers thinking? What's their type of theology? What, what do they understand about the temple they're coming to and the God who resides in this temple? There was at this time what we'll call a, the temple theology. They had a certain theology about the temple itself. And this is what they believed about the temple. That God made certain unconditional promises to the Davidic king. 
that the Davidic king will always be on the throne of Israel forever, and that God will always be with his people forever, and that as long as the temple is standing in Jerusalem, then Jerusalem will never fall because God lives in the temple in Jerusalem. And every time they see the temple, they are reminded that no matter how bad things get, no matter what enemy is coming, no matter how bad we're living, (laughs) Yahweh will keep us safe. That's their temple theology. And Jeremiah stands boldly to this national theology that this is considered orthodoxy. And he stands before them and says, wrong. This building is not proof that God will forever be with us. It's not an excuse to say we can live how we want and treat our neighbors however we want. So, our question tonight is, does our worship, what we gather together to do on a weekly basis, does our worship bring poison to the world Or does it heal the world? Is our worship poisonous? Or is it a healing balm for the sick and the wounded? Jeremiah is going to propose to the people that their worship was actually poisonous. And it was doing them no good whatsoever. And let us take heed as we go through that we do not worship in a detrimental way that is actually bringing poison in our midst and to the people around us. So, poison or healing. So, chapter 7, verse 1. Then the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all men of Judah who enter these gates to worship Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. Do not trust in your orthodoxy that says, this is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. See, that's the temple theology. It's God lives here. We're good. Don't talk about Babylon coming to destroy us. God wouldn't let that happen. He's greater than those gods. And Jeremiah is saying, don't trust. This is wrong. Don't believe in that. So verse 5, he says, If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then... I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. You hear what he has to tell them? Your temple theology is not guaranteeing your permanence here. If you would rather start treating your neighbor with love and stop oppressing the weak and stop shedding innocent blood, and it goes to this horrible list. If you'd rather amend your ways, that will be guaranteed that exile will never happen. And then he continues in verse 8, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. In other words, you trust in bad doctrine. (laughs) You're listening to lying prophets. 
Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me, Yahweh, in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, the temple, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Ouch. The temple had become a den of robbers. It's a place where people who live however they want come and say, yes, but here, because we worship, we're good. It covers us. We're protected. And it's this dualistic lifestyle. We worship here, and then we kind of do whatever we need to do to get ahead of the game over there. And because of the style of lives that are congregating in the temple, Jeremiah sees it not as a house of worshipers, or as Jesus will later call it, a house of prayer. It's now a den of robbers. Now, to rob, you don't actually have to take something. You can become a robber by withholding something that is properly Belonging to another. And in this point, Israel's doing both. God is pouring out blessings into this nation and they're taking it. But he's giving it to them. That's fine. But then they just leave it there. And they withhold the blessings of God from the people around them. And in this sense, these worshipers that come together, they're all about, woo, hallelujah, the blessings of Jesus and, well, Yahweh then, <laughs> the blessings of God and we're receiving all this goodness and yeah, we keep it in this temple. And then they go outside and it's like, curse you and you cut me off and getting advantage on everybody and trying to get ahead and taking just horrible stuff going on. Not loving neighbor. And this is what's happening. This is the den of robbers. It's we come here, we receive, 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 and then we keep, keep, keep what is rightfully belonging to all the world. That is a den of robbers. We must be so careful that we don't become an auditorium of robbers. That while there's an entire mountain and even, you know, the counties around our mountain where some of us might work and go to school, that there is a whole world and community here that deserves to be blessed by God just as much as you and I do. And there are times when we just come together and kind of keep this to ourselves and then we go out and it's like it never happened is this poison or is this balm? Is this a remedy? There's a picture that's going to be on the screen that sadly summarizes Jeremiah 7, the section we just read. And you see there what looks like a businessman, some sort of finely dressed gentleman. And you also see this malnourished um, Actually, looks a lot, he looks a lot worse on the screen than he does in the real picture. This malnourished boy 
desperate for water. And he's holding out his hand to receive just a drop, if even. And the businessman is pinching the hose. Now, I've, I, I stumbled upon that just on the internet. And when I was reading this passage in preparation tonight, this image just flooded into my head. Because it's just, it, to me, this image is graphic and it's memorable. And I thought, my goodness, this is a den of robbers. Well dressed in the grace of God and pinching it off to a thirsty, dying world. And this goes further. I mean, we, we live in a, in a blessed nation and, and we squabble often about how we want faster internet and a sofa that actually matches the rest of the living room and all these things. And, and there's a world that is perishing physically and spiritually. And we have to examine... Does our worship work? James says that a faith without works is dead. I would suggest that Jeremiah would say, worship without works is poison. It's dead. It's not going to go anywhere. And now how then do you suscitate a dead worship that's just, it's doing nothing and it's no good and it's poisonous and actually the rotting corpse is infiltrating across the nation of Israel and the whole system is going downhill, Jeremiah is saying. Unless you remedy this, it's all going downhill. How does that get fixed? It's very simple. If you're breathing, you're alive and our worship needs to breathe. That, that includes an inhalation of all of God is and the revelation and the blessings and the grace and the majesty and all these things we talk about and receive, we take this in and it changes us and it transforms us and it, and it lifts us up to more than we were in the, in the ash heap of dust and death. And we're, we're brought into life because we inhale the life of God. But some of us aren't exhaling and we would suffocate if we don't ever exhale. And worship is this living, breathing thing that God invites us into as we inhale the blessings and glory of God and then we exhale it into the world. The life God gives to us, we breathe upon others around us. And if there isn't this reception and then a manifestation of the blessings of the presence of God in our midst, then we are not worshipers, but we are robbers. Sometimes I think what happens is we know that this is good and we want this, but we sometimes forget the real purpose. If you look at 9 verse 25, we often miss the whole living, breathing part of worship because we squabble and we try to perfect the wrong things. For Israel, it was circumcision. So in verse 25 of chapter 9, we see God says through Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, 
declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. And then he lists these nations, Egypt, Judah, Edom, sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Circumcision. Remember that God gave that as a thing that Israel would do to themselves, all their male baby boys, to prove that we, are, we have a covenant with God. And to be uncircumcised means you're not initiated into this covenant people of God. So, of course, they would all circumcise their babies. Now, you can get really, really good at circumcision, as Israel was doing. In fact, other nations circumcised their babies too. And so what God is saying here through Jeremiah is, Israel, how special are you just because you're circumcised physically in the flesh? Look around you. That is no different than Egypt, Edom, and all these other nations. I was calling you to a circumcision that is more than just skin deep. A circumcision of the heart where something happens where you're cut there and you're broken and and you're before God and you're needing him to be your balm and your healing. And we, (laughs) thankfully it's not circumcision, but we have our little things about, well, this is... um, we all believe the same thing, but you're, you're kind of saying it wrong. It's a, it's a little off. Or, or we come together and, and we, we gripe about, I, I wish which Richard would play these songs, or that he'd put a banjo on stage, or that the music was quieter, or that the music was louder. Or we go on and on and on about our lists, and we even critique the teachers and the preaching and the, and the teaching of the word and say, my gosh, Jeremiah is so boring, I just want to get to Revelation. And we have all these things, and we come together... And we try to perfect skin-deep worship. Something that's only come here and has not gone the distance. See, worship is to be inside out. It's that God does something in me, in you, in us. And he meets us here and he invites us and draws us to his table. and And we are blessed and we are rich and we're given life. And we're filled with his spirit. And then this goes out from the inside out. And it then turns into manifestations, expressions like singing. Like Bible study. Like raising the hands. Like prayer. Something happens inside and it comes outside. But if that's the only way we express, we're limiting the worship of God. Because the outside goes one more step beyond the ritual, beyond the circumcision, beyond the singing and the praying and the studying, and it goes towards actually literally bestowing the blessings we've received upon another person, just as God has done to us. And so it turns out that we come to the word to the temple as worshipers and we receive and we're satiated and we're filled and we leave the temple as worship leaders to give to others exactly what we received in the temple. But we spend all of our time talking about how circumcision should happen 
You got to use this angle. You got to use that edge. Use this point. And all I'm hearing in the church today is people making their points and people trying to find the right edge and being cool and being hip and being relevant. And in the midst of this knife sharpening, razor edge theology and right doctrine, and we've got it all down, we're cutting off relationships. We're cutting the wrong stuff. And that, that is in 9 verse 4. Because of all of this, Jeremiah says, Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. And he goes on and continues to explain the situation. It's gotten so bad that Jeremiah says, stop trusting each other. Because this is what happens when we perfect the method and forget about the mission. It's, it's as if we're getting ready for a, a wedding. And you have a young man and a young woman. And then you got the pastor counseling them. And the young man and the young woman are to be getting ready in this engagement period for a marriage, a life together. But all they can think about in the moment is the wedding. Make sure the music's right. Make sure all the pieces are in place. And make sure that we invite the right people and not the wrong people. And make sure the food is good and we stay in budget. And there's all these things that they got to perfect and get down and get together. And I feel like God is often calling to us like this pastor trying to counsel them. Don't forget to plan for your marriage too. The wedding's important, but that's one day. Don't forget you're going into a relationship. And church, I can't help but think how often we come together to perfect the wedding. Can we please get together and push each other towards the marriage, the relationship between God and his people? Can we, can we remind each other every time we bicker about what edge of the knife to use or what point to make in our skin-deep worship that it goes deeper than that? That there's something that happens here where we're to be built up and filled up and encouraged and strengthened and unified together so that we become a force of blessing in the world. We're to take each other's hands and unpinch the hose that life can flow. So naturally, in chapter 10, we see that Israel is into idolatry. Because <laughs> this is what happens. If you limit the presence of God and the blessings of God to the temple of God, to some building, you have actually limited the being of God to something made with hands. And that is idolatry. Limiting God and not letting him be God. It's controlling. 
So idolatry essentially works on two points. It's the pursuit for autonomy. Autonomy, auto means self. Nomos means law. Self-law, self-governed, autonomy. It's this desire to not be controlled by something outside, but to have control over everything around you. The self-rule, the self-kingship, the self-governing, that is ultimately what idolatry pursues. And it does so, it aims for autonomy by means of investing one's life in the things one invents. Investing in what one invents. Idolatry centers around things that are handmade, the created order, um, Things that are not the creator and the sovereign God. We look at things that we invent and we want to invest all of our hopes and all of our worship and our lives into them. Movies, celebrities, sports. We have 24 hours a day sporting networks. Sport networks. And ESPN was enough. So they made ESPN 2. And then they had ESPN News. And then they have ESPN 3. And then they have... ESPN Classic. And then you've got Fox. Fox has their branch of sports networks. And it's like, is it ever enough? We invent sports. We invent sports networks. And we invest all we are into them. We have men who live in their armchairs. (laughs) Ladies, not through yet. (laughs) I could go down the list. And you guys know that in the church... Atheism is not the greatest danger. It is limiting the unlimited God to an idol. And it is investing our lives and our hope in things we invent. Like our homes and our fashions and even our theologies. We think we can be super spiritual and excuse everything that we do, but... Let us not invest ourselves in what we invent. So chapter 10, Nehemiah talks about the idolatry. And you see in verse 2, that says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations. Not, uh, don't be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down. And worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so they cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in the cumber field, cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. They do, uh, do not be afraid of them, Israel, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. And chapter 10 goes on a little bit about idolatry. And then God says, but I'm the creator. And so forth. Now, why would Israel ever struggle with idolatry? If they have a God as great as the God that we talk about, and they had the prophets to talk to them, and they had the revelation through the law of Moses, and all these things, why would Israel ever fall into idolatry? Because God demands a lot from his worshipers. Does he not? He demands a heart change. He demands loyalty. He demands that you don't stay the same. He demands that he become your king. Idols demand 
none of that. Idols say, you call the shots. You love sexual perversion, we got a God for you. You love wealth and prosperity, we've got a God for you. So yes, idolatry is the easy way. But idolatry also never calls you beyond yourself. And that's the other reason you would fall into idolatry. Because not only does it have no demands, but it never calls you to anything beyond yourself. And that's what it does. It feeds self. It's this total introverted way of living. And the great God comes into the scene and says, I'm calling you out of yourself. I'm calling you to be more than this corrupt creature. I'm calling you to become the creature that I created you to be and I intended you to be. And and the thoughts and the future and the hope and the visions and the dreams that I have for you. I'm calling you out of that. I'm calling you to stop trotting with men and start running with horses. Outrun them. Become more. Become the full life that I've created you to experience. And we hear that and we say yes. And then we see what it takes to get there. And we say idols are so much better right? See, idols never call us beyond ourselves, but God calls us beyond ourselves. It calls us to live into the limitlessness of his being. So, this is why it's often said that we become what we worship. If you want to pursue a bubble, you will become a bubble. Bubble is the way I'm translating the word vanity, used three times in chapter 10. Vanity means nothingness, breath, vapor, a mist, a wind. It's something that is just here and gone. It's like a bubble. I mean, it looks really nice, it's pleasing, but it pops. And we pursue those things, we become those things, because those things never call us outside of ourselves, and we become this limited life that is stuck in limitedness, (laughs) It's as we've been saying, remember from chapter one and the previous chapters, it's only living. It's I'm only this and I can only do that and blah, 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 blah. Limited. But God is calling Israel to more and he's, calling, he's trying to stretch them and grow them to live fully. So lesser gods limit our lives to lesser lives. You can never live more fully than the God you worship. And so part of what Jeremiah is telling these worshipers is a robbers, you're idolaters. But let's shift gears dramatically in eight verse 18. Lesser gods limit our lives to ourselves. That's what idolatry does. Um, There's a temple of robbers that aren't letting the blessings of God flow through them to the rest of the world, but they're limiting it to the house, the temple. And so there's this total minimizing of God in the lives he's calling his people to live. And there's this lesser than, it's just like everybody else is no different. How does Jeremiah look at this and how does he react and how does he set an example for the people to come out of this limited worship and into more and into the fullness of the divine Godhead? How does he do that? (laughs) He weeps. 
Jeremiah weeps. He was called the weeping prophet. And throughout Jeremiah, there's going to be a couple of laments, they're called. It's where Jeremiah just kind of throws it all on the table and whines and cries. Not in a complaining way, but in a heartbroken, I can't stand it way. And then at the end of Jeremiah, we have the whole book of Lamentations. Jeremiah was the weeper. And this is what he does. He looks at this den of robbers and this nation of idolaters, and he breaks down. So in 8.18, let's look at what he does. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the, land, from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with cruel, I'm sorry, with their carved images and with foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved, the people say. And it continues, For the wound of my daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and that my eyes were fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of, my, of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has, gone, has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Well, that's heartbroken language right there, right? If only my eyes were a fountain that they would never stop weeping over my people. But here's my question. Who is talking? At first, as you start to read it, it's naturally Jeremiah. But then you start going through it, and he starts to say, my people. And you're like, okay, well, Jeremiah could say, these are my people. It's my nation. But then it starts going more, and at the very end, there's this hook where you're like, what? Verse 3, it says, thus saith the Lord, or declares the Lord. So now you're like, whoa, who is talking, Jeremiah or God? Who is the one weeping here? I think it's vague on purpose. Because this is what we have. We have the heart of the prophet that is in perfect rhythm with the heart of God. That these two hearts are weeping simultaneously over the same condition. And that is what worship is. It is beating with the very heartbeat of God. It is weeping when he weeps and rejoicing when he rejoices. And Jeremiah gets it. Jeremiah sees it. And he knows He feels what God feels. God feels what Jeremiah feels. And there's this rhythm, there's this symmetry, there's this unity. But we often shy away from this. We don't like to think of worship as something that causes us to weep and mourn. We look at worship as the big explosion of the week. 
start with a fast song, and then we kind of dwindle down to get more serious, kind of thing. Like, it's this, it's this joyous celebration, and it often is. But here's what we need to realize, and I think what Jeremiah is calling the, his audience to realize is that we cannot have joy without sorrow. That worship requires this rhythm with God that is both excited and also a lament. Because remember, we're dealing with the people. You might remember the Tower of Blocks and that are now crumbled. And, and, and the four effects of trauma, that one that the mind gets Disfrag- it gets fragmented and it's scattered and the memory just doesn't make sense and you don't even know how to make sense of things. And then the mouth, it, it can't find words for the pain that it's experiencing. And then your faith becomes undermined and everything you thought you knew and the God you thought was good, everything starts to crumbling. Like, what the heck? I don't know anything anymore. And then what, was el- what else was one of the effects? It was that the heart shuts down. Is that the heart becomes numb because you can't take pain anymore. So the way you survive and the way you cope is to shut feelings down. But tears, tears remind us that we're alive. Tears remind us we have a heartbeat. Tears are evidence that we feel. And Jeremiah is talking to a den of robbers and a nation of idolaters and saying, weep with God Weep with me. This is where the heart of worship begins. This is where healing starts. That as we weep and the tears fall, Yahweh is there. Psalm 56 verse 7 to catch our tears with his bottle. 56 verse 8, excuse me. That Yahweh weeps when we weep. Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, knowing full well he's going to resurrect him out of the grave, weeps anyways. That Jesus, when overlooking Jerusalem, begins to weep, heartbroken over the city. And worship is an invitation not just to, woo, blessing in the temple, and then we kind of leave and go off on our lives. It's about receiving this And letting the limited, damaged part of us that has been ruined by other robbers or by idolatry within our own lives, our own idols, and letting the tears water the arid, dry desert of our hearts, that God may grow blessings and joy there. But we don't like to worship this way. We in our minds think that it's either weakness or it displeases God. The God who says, be happy and be joyful. And we think that that's what Christians are supposed to be all the time. It's like a skip and a hop and like you're walking on clouds. It's not the case all the time. There is real moments to weep and to let it happen because God is there to heal And so in our minds we think, but it shouldn't happen. So we kind of think that there's this control panel of emotions and you got joy on this side and you've got you know uh excitement here and then you got anxiety and you got fear and weeping and we look at this control panel like i want to be happy i want to be joyful i want to be you know loved by people and and then we get anxiety off fear off weeping off 
And we try to control our emotions as if it's a control panel. But here's the truth of the matter. All of our emotions, both joy and sorrow, operate under one power switch. And if I am to shut down weeping, I am also to shut down joy. And that when the time comes or the moment is there or we see a nation that is just that is just breaking our hearts, it's to weep for it and to weep with God in it. Because there's a danger where we can grow hard-hearted and it will permeate through all of your life. It's healed people who know how to heal people. We're talking about letting the blessings of God be received in the temple, then manifested out of it. We need to be healed that we can go heal. So it said in 822, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? The answer is no. Because Israel knows where to get its balm and where to find its physician. And Jeremiah is calling them to find it on their knees with a broken heart and tears streaming down their faces. And that that's where they'll find it. That's the balm. That's the physician. Now, I know some of us are thinking, I, I don't weep. Come on. That's, no, I don't do that. Hey, I'm not calling you to cry like a baby. I know we're all different here, and we, some were blessed with, like, super turbocharged emotion kit that God gave them. And others of us, God gave about that much range. It's like, sorrow and joy is about that far apart. But this is what we're being called to from Jeremiah is the heart of worship is to stop squabbling over how to use the edge or what point to make in the circumcision, the skin deep ritual and planning for a wedding and it's to start living in the marriage. And it's to stop being a house of robbers and to start becoming a house that is bleeding out blessing for the world. It's just a torrent of it. And it's to throw the idols down and to live more than that. To allow God to call you out. And yes, that path is painful and it's scary. But the tears along the way water the garden to an Eden. God's there collecting them in his bottle, the Psalms say. And he's pouring them out upon you. This, this is true heart of worship is it puts away the gimmicks and the skin deep ceremonies and it gets deep down inside and it realizes who we are before God and that I never was deserving. And it changes the way I see those that I think are undeserving. Because I'm healed, I can now go heal. Can I please invite us back to the heart of worship? That heart that is less about us and more about the world at large. Or let's start realistically. It's about the community right around Twin Peaks and Running Springs and Crestline and Lake Arrowhead. Let's not rob the world of what goes on in your own life. Become a worship leader because you have worshiped in that moment of weeping and in that moment of joy. You have not refused God all accesses of your life. So, if we don't 
get to the heart of worship, we have the same message that Jeremiah had for those people. And it's the caution of exile. Our false worship is leading us into exile. I'm not saying some geographical scattering across the world where, you know, Sunday night Bible study no longer has a building. It got torn down by the barbarians and the Indians. And like, I'm not saying anything like that. Exile is dislocation from your home. It's in a foreign place. It's where you don't even know who you are anymore. And all of the identity, the insulators and the borders that told you who you are, it vanishes and you don't even know who you are. You don't know your purpose. You're exiled from your true self. True worship will teach us who we are and it will call us to become more than just living for self, but it calls us to be more. And so what true worship does is true worship is not limiting. It's not, well, now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you worship me. I tell you, don't do this and don't do that. But you should do that and you should do that. That is what we often think of. Like worship is limiting and it's so, uh, I, I think that idols are better. And this world has more to offer for me. But God is calling us to a true heart of worship that says worship is not limiting. It's liberating. Worship is calling us to be more than we've ever been before and to live in the freedom of a God who has no bounds and is calling us to the limitlessness of joy, even if through that is weeping. Even if tears are the trail to get us there. But he's saying, be more than who you are being today. Stop being limited by fears and these other things about like, well, God doesn't really, and nobody really wants to believe in God. Nobody wants to be saved. I'm just going to try to work on getting one person in my life to be saved, or I'm going to witness to this person. And like, we have this minimalistic mentality of, oh, this is all that shows up on Sunday night. This is all that goes to church on Sunday morning. There's a mountain bigger than this. I know it. And we're like thinking, how can we just get 1% more in the church? And God is saying, wait a minute. Don't limit me. Don't leash me to the house. God desires that all men can be saved. And I believe that God is for all people. They just don't know it yet. And I want to live liberated in the worship that I experience and the wonder that I see. Just as we read a good book and see a good movie and watch an awesome sports game, we go share with people. I want the wonder and the awe to go liberate me to invite all people into this party. That to me is what worship is. It is the most liberating thing I can do and participate in. And it is there in the glory of God that I find out who Brandon is. And Brandon is not limited to the weaknesses of his flesh. Brandon has the potential to be everything God is calling him to be. So let us worship truthfully. Let us put aside issues about the knife and circumcision and the skin-deep ceremonies and how the wedding should look. Spent long enough church perfecting the wedding. Let's be concerned about the guest list. Let's be concerned about the marriage itself. Relationship. Not razor-sharp theology, not good points and best worship, music, but the heart. Let's let God speak to the heart again. And let's from the heart speak to him, whether it's in tears or in joy, speak to him.
and let him speak to you. Let's push aside the ceremonies and get back to receiving blessing that we can manifest blessing. Let's unpinch the hose. Father, let there be a true heart, a healed heart, a living heart, a heart that weeps and laughs, a heart that mourns and celebrates. Let us worship.